HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home. Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, it, it's so odd, be it felicity, be it coincidence, but I don't know if you can tell. I'm going to turn the mic for a second. But Don Giovanni is playing in the background. And for those of you that don't know, I, I didn't personally know this by ear, um, you know, it, it's a great opera. And, uh, you know, Opera itself is great, and there couldn't be anybody better here to talk about opera and food than David Keck. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. So it's fascinating to talk to somebody who has had a career that they were so studied in and so practiced in. Um, not that you necessarily veered off the road, but went a completely different direction and became a master sommelier. Sure. Uh, where in the world did this journey start? <laughs> Um, so I guess it started, I mean, I started singing when I was 12 as a boy soprano and then, um, started bartending when I was 18 and sort of did both of them simultaneously for a long time. I mean, moving to New York and continuing to sing and, uh, working in the restaurant and hospitality industry was always kind of a thing I did on the side and really enjoyed wine, but it was never the full on career. I was always singing, um, but then kind of started to meet people who were also in music, who had a 
passion for wine and fine wine and um, sort of started down that rabbit hole a little bit, but it was purely through association and uh, not through my own work. And then, yeah, I sort of swapped out one passion for uh, the other. I love this part of it. What is this part of Don Giovanni that I can hear in the background? So actually, they switched over. Oh, no. it, it, we're on. We're on a totally different. Uh, <laughs> they're playing the greatest hits right now. We, yeah, yeah. We're out of Giovanni and yeah. uh, into goodness. I don't know, actually know. I think we're in the. No, I have no idea what we're listening to. <laughs> <laughs> but starting at twelve years old, what are the first songs or first roles in opera that you get introduced to? So for me, I was uh, I had the fortunate experience that there was a great little opera company called Opera North up in uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire. And so they were doing uh, Benjamin Britten opera, which is not frequently performed at all, called Noyes Flood, which is uh, an early sort of a, based on uh, the story of Noah and the Ark. And so I was one of the... Uh, Noah's sons are all cast as boy sopranos. So um, actually quite a challenging opera and totally different than, you know, not where most people begin, but uh, but a great place to start. Um, and both of my parents were professional musicians, so I kind of grew up with music around the house. But then I just started to be a sort of an opera brat, singing in the choruses, doing whatever I could, and then musical theater and all that stuff. So. I mean, it's quite a role to be one of Noah's sons rather than like elephant number two. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it worked out well. It worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> but you grew up in the Northeast Kingdom in Vermont. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about the great drinks coming out of that area of the country right now because sure. it's starting to flourish with wine and certainly yeah. is an epicenter of beer. Uh, was your family, you know, were they culinary artists as well? Not really. I mean, when you grow up in a town of 400 people and the nearest grocery store and actually any restaurant that you really want to eat in is at least eight miles away, um, you just cook at home. And we grew up uh, always cooking and uh, eating together. And dinner was always one of those things that I, and I think this is kind of a through line when you talk with a lot of chefs and people in the hospitality business, it's like, oh yeah, dinner was a thing for my family. Whether, you know, whether your parents really cook well, and I'm fortunate that both of my parents actually cook really well, um, but, or, or they don't, it's just that act of like sitting down around the table, I think sort of inspires a lot of that, uh, interest and, and love for hospitality. So we always grew up, I mean, eating dinner at the house and cooking, and then there was always wine on the table. And um, But it wasn't, neither of my parents were in the hospitality business at all. See, now I picture you as an 18-year-old bartender um, at one of maybe those karaoke joints, and you were the <laughs> ringer at the end of the night. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. I did, I did a short stint uh, in Maine as a singing bartender, and that was wild, uh, the deck house in Southwest Harbor. So Wait, please tell me more about that. What songs, uh, what, what, does this so still exist? It's, I believe it still exists, actually. Um, it's in Southwest Harbor, Maine on uh, Mount Desert Island. And actually, everybody was hired more for their singing and musical theater abilities than their uh, bartending or waiting abilities. Thankfully, I kind of worked in both. <laughs> um, but yeah, it would, you know, we'd do a seating a night and people would come in, sit down, and then, you know, you would kind of alternate running out from behind the bar to do a musical number and then running back and bartending. It was wild. Yeah. So <laughs> what song paired with... Uh, um the steak. You know, it wasn't so much, it was more of a musical theater review than a pairing. <laughs> Although we're doing, we're actually wildly enough doing a, um, a dinner with Olivier Krug at the Honky Tonk coming up next week. And, um, and so we actually, I, I am not performing, thankfully, I don't do that anymore. Uh, but, <laughs> but I worked with a band in town to pair the wines actually with different musical styles uh, for the dinner. It's super fun. So 
that still continues. And I think it's awesome, actually, when you have the opportunity to kind of um, think about food and beverage in musical terms. Well, it seems like these things never really separated for you. You came to New York, got an mm-hmm. English degree at Columbia, and then went to Juilliard for mm-hmm. opera. Um, while you were studying opera, did you work in restaurants or did you eat out amongst, you know, this giant metropolis? Yeah, I didn't. Um, I probably didn't eat out as much as I should, but uh, or should have at that time, uh, just because it's funny, I swapped careers that have pretty much the same hours. So you're rehearsing and performing often at the same times that industry people in hospitality go to work. So um, often I was performing uh, at the times I'd be going out to eat. Um, but I bartended all through Columbia for the Columbia Bartending Agency, which is an amazing uh, gig while you're there because you just show up and pour somebody else's booze in their awesome apartment somewhere. Um, but then, yeah, worked a, a little bit everywhere. Greek place out in Astoria, uh, another bistro that doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, it was always a little bit on the side because when you're singing, you might need to pick up and go somewhere for six weeks, eight weeks, and uh, kind of hard to maintain a job. So when you did pick up and go places, uh, was one of them Houston because, you know, talking about Vermont and New York and maybe the opera capitals of the country, I wouldn't necessarily pick Houston as one of those. It actually, so Houston grand opera is truly one of the great opera houses in the world. And, um, it's funny. I definitely had a northeastern perspective on Houston, and I was singing in Aspen, Colorado, with the Aspen Music uh, Opera Theater Center. And uh, there's a wonderful teacher I was working with there who teaches at Rice and also works with the studio at uh, Houston Grand Opera. And uh, we started doing work together. Stephen King is his name, and wonderful teacher. And he said, you know, at that time I actually had tickets to go to Austria and sing European auditions, and um, then I tore my ACL idiotically playing pickup basketball, which I don't even play really. <laughs> and uh, and the work we were doing was good. He was like, you should think about coming back to school and doing your master's at Rice. And um, and then, yeah, I went down and sang a gig actually in Houston, sang my audition and uh, ended up moving to Houston. So, yeah, it's crazy how that works. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come right back and talk about the convergence of music and wine. Sounds good. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the food scene at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with David Keck. And we're talking about music and we're talking about opera specifically, but that paired with wines. Because you moved down to Houston to, to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
who was it or why did you pick up that first glass of wine? Uh, you know, start leading the way of, of sommelier rather than opera sure. singer. So I kind of actually credit, um, there's a gentleman here who is a um, conductor, coach, and uh, amazing musician at Juilliard named Ken Merrill. And uh, he and his partner Chris had been going to Europe for years and tasting wine, bringing cases back. They're good friends with a lot of what we would consider the wine royalty of uh, France, but going when, you know, before you needed appointments and things like that. And um, Ken sort of found out that I was interested in wine was like, oh, well, we should talk because you don't know what you're doing, basically. <laughs> I mean, he said it in uh, undoubtedly the most gracious way possible, uh, that being his style. But um, but then, you know, he and Chris, it would always be, oh, if we're going to open this, we should try this, we should open this, we should try this. And, you know, 10 bottles of wine later, you're sort of looking at stuff and trying to unwrap my head around it. And then when I moved to Houston, um, I thought, you know, I needed a job on the side and uh, started working in a wine bar. So that was kind of when I started to do my own study and um, and started to really taste wine and pour wine for people in a totally different way. So what's better for your throat, Burgundy or Rhone? It's hard to know. <laughs> it depends on what you're planning on singing. Yeah, because yeah. I've always heard, don't drink milk before you sing. You know, it coats yeah. your throat in a specific way. Um, I've also, is it called flubbering? The, the way you kind of, <laughs> am I right about this? I mean, I've not heard that term before, yeah. but I can understand exactly what it means. Yeah, trying to, you know, open up your vocal cords, and it's a way you, you kind of, like, sing but not sing. Um, I have no idea, but maybe. I yeah. mean, it's I've been out of the game for a little while. So. <laughs> I mean, what, what kind of vocal exercises do you do to get ready for opera? And are any of those similar to the way you taste wine? Huh. I have never been asked that before. Um, I don't think about them really in the same way as far as preparation. I do. I think probably the the greatest um, similarity that I, I, I guess, in connecting those things. I mean, warming up to sing opera is very much a, a unique and to each person, how they warm up, what they do. I mean, singers uh, historically have all sorts of weird ways to, to prepare. Um, I think singers actually and sommeliers are very neurotic in similar ways. <laughs> like what, you know, oh, I can't eat this before I taste wine. Oh, I can't drink this before I taste wine. It's going to screw up my palate. Oh, I can't eat or drink this before I sing. It's going to screw up my high notes. It's going to screw up the way I vocalize and all that sort of stuff. But I think actually most of the, the great uh, performers are similar to the great sommeliers that it's like, oh, no, it's just a thing. It's, it's my job. I do it. It's fine. Like I don't, they don't get too neurotic about it. Um, but I do think that Blind tasting and um, music have many similarities. That's probably the one connection I draw regularly in my teaching is between sort of a drop the needle test. And because we all talk about music as like a thing that we enjoy, but when you study it, you're looking at it in a much more clinical way. And I think wine is the same. We look at it very um, sort of casually until you study it, and then it's a clinical process. And so being able to break down a wine, understand its various aspects, why it tastes the way it does, based upon grape varieties and where it's grown and how it's made. Um, and then we break down music in the same way. You can listen to a piece and say, oh, well, this is clearly this uh, composer because of the way the bass line progresses here, this style, this chordal progression, things like that, that you know somebody can casually listen and enjoy, but not necessarily think about critically. You brought up an interesting... Uh kind of thread I want to follow about how when you start with wine, it's casual, then it can become clinical, especially when you're going for your master's. Mm -hmm. Then it seems to be wanting to get back to casual. Yeah. Uh, you worked at a great place called Camerato. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Can can you explain what kind of wine list that was and what, what type of wine service you were delivering? Sure, absolutely. So when we opened that bar, um, you know, I was deep in my own studies. And so to some extent, I wrote the list as a, um, a an academic process for myself of finding wines that are classic to classic regions that I thought were iconic producers, but also tasted delicious, that being kind of the the number one criterion, which I think people forget sometimes. It's like, does it taste good? Great. Does Mm -hmm. it also like represent this region well? And so I kind of wrote the list both as my own study guide, but also for my staff so that they could, I mean, our training process to get that bar open was seriously a week of eight hour days, tasting every wine on the list, talking about them, making sure that they understood who made it, where it was from. And um, and it was a total study process, but then it immediately sort of springboarded off of that into, okay, we need new stuff because people have tried these, so mm-hmm. what else are we going to bring in? And so it was a constantly evolving list, uh, which is fun. So f- from there, um, you got a Somalia of the Year Award in 2006, uh, 2016 by Food and Wine, um, but you had this urge to open up your own place. Uh, what is it about not just studying wine and figuring out where you fit in that world, you know, developing your own style and personality. How do you imbue that in a restaurant and how do you change a wine list to make it your own and, sure. and change service to have this, this personal <clears throat> affect to it? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And it is actually a little bit of the X factor that we all work toward, right? Is, um, and I, I think, I have this conversation a lot with um, other sommeliers because it's like, how do you continue to be original? How do you continue to... But I think at the end of the day, it's really about um, developing your own opinions. And that's a hard thing to do with as much noise as there is in the industry right now. There's Everybody's on Instagram. Everybody's posting new wines that they've tasted or they've, places they've traveled. And it's hard to take all of that and still maintain somewhat, uh, you know, Switzerland in all of it and kind of draw your own conclusions. Um, but I think, you know, one of the best things we can do is talk to winemakers, visit regions, and um, meet people and develop personal relationships because I think that, at the end of the day, is the thing that separates, um, m- you know, a person's understanding of the wine from a an academic place um, and a very personal connection to it. And that, I think, is what informs great service as well. And it's trying to then convey that to your staff and to the people who, at the end of the day, are... Uh, having that relationship with your guests, right? So they're the ones talking to the guest on a daily basis. And if you can instill in them at least like a tiny percentage of your joy and um, personal relationship with a wine or a region or um, a thing, then and they convey that to the guest, then I think we're being successful. I, I know you're a big advocate for the Loire Valley in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've started uh, something called Loire Fest, which is a huge stateside celebration of wine from that region. Mm-hmm. But how, how do you convince a, a maker from there that the perfect place to open up one of those bottles is a honky-tonk bar <laughs> in Houston? I mean, what what is honky-tonk anyway? Right. Well, so Goodnight Charlie's has been a, a wild process, um, both just uh, the idea, then getting it open. So it's a honky-tonk, I mean... And because I can't help but go down the academic rabbit hole whenever I do a thing, like it was first coined in the 19th century. There's a piece of literature from uh, in Dallas that mentions a honky tonk, and it kind of evolved over the beginning part of the 20th century as a place to go drink, uh, usually dance, gamble, do illegal things, and um, and have a good time. And then, kind of through the middle of the 20th century, it evolved into more of a dance hall, and um, that's how it kind of exists now. And um, 
I came up, I guess, with the idea for Goodnight Charlie's and bounced it off my business partner, Pete, and we were sort of debating it, um, I don't know, as long as, I guess, five, six years ago when Blanco's closed, which was a classic Houston establishment, and said, hey, let's do a thing. What do you think about this? And um, But we opened a brand new building in the middle of Montrose, the Montrose area in Houston, Texas, which is not your classic spot. It used to be maybe a classic spot for a honky-tonk, but now it's uh, a pretty nice area and very arts and independent restaurant-driven. So so we've got this weird sort of, I don't know, entity of a honky-tonk in Montrose. And as a result, um, we've been able to kind of play with that idea. And I've done a number of wine events there that, you know, wine profession. Honestly, we'd been open a month and the quartermaster sommeliers had their board meeting in Houston. And so we had, uh, you know, 20 master sommeliers in there drinking Krug, eating tacos and two-stepping and having a blast. And I think um, it's a kind of a perfect location to both drink Lone Star and, you know, do a shot of Makers and, uh, and two-step, but also come in, have a great time, listen to great music, and also drink something really awesome. So Yeah, I mean, does that ever worry you, the fact that you have tacos there, you have Lone Star there, that people won't reach for the wine? Or do you even consider wine a reach? Yeah, you know, honestly, we... We opened with just a couple of wines on tap, uh, both from Texas, and there was a lot of sort of skepticism, especially from wine folks coming in and saying, hey, I was expecting a wine list here. And I said, well, try the wine. What do you think? And, uh, you know, they're drinking um, McPherson out of a Gibraltar, and, uh, you know, which is pretty much a, a shot glass, and, and loving it, actually, and it's great. And um, I think it's all about how you sort of set something up and um, and talk about it. And I think there's an ability to be casual about wine as well. That's fine. And um, and we have other concepts coming, which are going to involve a tremendous amount of wine. So Yeah, well, let's talk about uh, a little bit of pairing first, not not of music necessarily, but of tacos. Sure. I mean, what, what classic wine regions go best with Cochinita Pill Bill or the Rajas Con Queso or even these newer iterations like hot sure. chicken or cheesesteak? Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, bubbles and sort of richer styles of champagne are great. And we, you know, soon after we opened, rolled out what I called the Rhinestone Cowboy Special, which was a bottle of Tete de Cuvée champagne, whether it be Bollinger Grand Anais or Krug, um, Grand Cuvée with 12 tacos. And I think that actually pairs really nicely. The The tacos at Goodnight Charlie's are not super spicy. You can kick it up if you want, but it's more, they're more um, just sort of have a complex mix of spices. Chef is doing an amazing job with that. And so honestly, a richer style barrel fermented uh, champagne works really nicely. Uh, the bubbles help as well. Um, and then actually we've got uh, on a slightly lower it's not low end, but more affordable uh, basis. June Rodil is making a rosé with Marcus Huber in Austria. And so we're pouring her rosé, which is got, you know, it's got a little dosage to it. It's a little bit softer and um, has a little sweetness. And it's great, actually. It pairs beautifully. Um, and then, uh, honestly, the wines on tap work pretty well. So, so I mean, you're not going to have to answer this question anymore because you are expanding as, as a, a, you know, entity. Sure. Uh, the, the Good Night Hospitality Group is opening up three different concepts yeah. in the next, you know, year, in mm-hmm. less than a year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, talk to me about why you would ever do that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, but how, how differing, how varying, how excited you are to have these three new things in the world yeah no we're we're super excited yes it's a little bit um masochistic to do three in one year but they're all in one building they're all in the same block actually as Goodnight charlie's um so there is some uh, facility with that and they're wildly different concepts actually so we're doing montrose cheese and wine which is a cheese and wine retail shop with the ability to have some like half glasses there 
a little bit of sort of dine-in service, but most of it is going to be sort of the retail aspect, which is fun. And there isn't, there's so little independent retail right now in Houston that it's a, a pretty cool thing. And then, uh, and the cheese shop aspect, uh, there's one amazing cheese shop in Houston, but it's way up on the north side. And so uh, with Lindsay Schechter runs that called Dairy Maids, an amazing spot. We kind of got her benediction on our place before <laughs> we open. You have to do yeah. that, right? Um, but it'll be fun to do that. Then Rosie Cannonball with a you know wood-burning oven to do some pizzas and a bunch of other stuff and a grill. And the wine list will be very Loire and you know bubbles-driven and Lambrusco and just a lot of sort of easy-to-drink uh, quaffable beverages, beverages and... Uh, spritzes and things like that so kind of that european style casual dining um but the hope there is just to have a very energetic place where people can come in and get a lot of stuff on the table and just eat and drink the way uh, many of us like to do when we go out um and then we're opening march which is a wildly different concept as far as being uh fine dining 28 seats tasting menu only homage to the mediterranean and uh chef felipe richo and i are working uh really carefully to basically do an uh, a really crazy pairing menu there, which is going to be fun. Yeah, I want to know more about the pairing. I know Chef Felipe is Mexican, I think from the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Are you bringing in Mexican wines? I am not doing a huge amount of work with Mexican wine right now. There's some really cool stuff happening. So I'm going to, and some of it's coming in, some of it's not. I, the sad part is that, you know, so often we get to try a bunch of cool stuff, but it isn't seeing it a whole lot of importation right now. There is a little bit going on. Um, there are a few places working with it well. Um, but Felipe actually, so Felipe is uh, Italian and Mexican. His parents are, or his uh, father's Italian and his mother's Mexican, and he was born in uh, in Mexico. But, um, you know, that Italian inspiration is huge for him, and he spent the last year stodging in Europe, or, or actually, before we opened Goodnight Charlie's, and so working at like Osteria Francescana, and so a lot of that Italian influence is playing in. Um, the wine list itself, though, for March is pretty diverse as far as the influence, but it's only, we're basically restricting it to 50 producers, and then just doing as much depth and breadth as we can. So each one of those is going to be a personal relationship. Well, let's talk about this pairing that you brought up with uh, Olivier Krug. Yeah. And that you are pairing wines with different pieces of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does the menu look like for that? And I mean, why were you ever inspired to finally reamalgamate these two worlds? Sure. Um, <coughs> well, actually, and some of the inspiration for that came from Krug themselves. They often talk about the wines as far as they do their single vineyard uh, wines, the Claude Ambonnet, Claude Menil, two of the most sort of sought after and expensive champagnes in the world, all the way to the Grand Cuvée, which is a blend of a lot of different vintages and vineyards. And, um, and they sort of see that as moving from the soloist to the orchestra. And so um, in that conversation, there's a great band in Houston called Western Bling that um, I knew they have a fiddle player who's actually also a classically trained violinist. And I was like, oh, here we go. This is ideal. So we started to just talk about, OK, can you play um, solo violin to start out? And maybe we'll start, start with like Bach or Beethoven or something um, definitely classical, but also that would fit with this sort of pure, beautiful expression of champagne. And we're sort of progressing through some folk-inspired classical music into actual, like, French gypsy-style folk music into American folk music and then into what they do um, for a lot of what they perform, which is sort of red dirt Texas country, as we get into, as we add sort of more vineyards, more vintages, and the wines get a little bit more toward, like, their Grand Cuvée, which is that blend of a bunch of different things, which is really what you get when you get into more modern music, so... It's kind of a cool progression. It'll be fun. And then food-wise, Chef is doing, um, again, a, a sort of um, 
building upon simpler, lighter, more delicate ingredients and getting to the point where we finish with actually like a tahine redfish on the half shell, which is, you know, sort of elevated um, as far as what we do with tacos on a regular basis, but still definitely coming out with tortillas and um, sort of all the fixings. So that that sounds like it, it can travel. That has yeah. legs enough <laughs> yeah. to maybe go to Austria and, you know, yep. take place in Vienna. But I mean, one last and big, big question. What wine is honky tonk? Oh man. <laughs> is there is there a honky tonk wine? You know, I'd almost god, it's tough. I'd almost say there's a, a honky tonk cider. Um because it's kind of that I feel like cider is that beverage right now that's bridging the gap pretty well because it's kind of in its uh, at its heart a rustic beverage or it has been traditionally but now there's a lot of sort of refined versions coming out so we're working a lot with Shaxbury in Vermont sort of near near and dear to my heart so I would say you know they're actually we we selected a single barrel of whistle pig and they're aging a cider for us in the whistle pig barrel. So my guess is what comes out of there is going to be pretty close to a honky tonk beverage. Yeah. So it's all the things you drink either before, after or yeah. with wine as 100%. well. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I hope to make it down someday, not only to, you know, see you eat all the food, but experience that convergence of, you know, live music and real alive wine on your palate. Thank That'd you be great. so much, David. No, thank you. Excellent. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies, and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening. <laughs>